Welcome to Not Your Token Minority, a podcast exploring and celebrating the stories of the global majority. If you're a regular listener, thank you so much for being patient over the past couple of weeks. Life here has been pretty full on lately, and to be honest, I just needed a couple of weeks to catch up on some editing. I have some really great stories coming your way, and I cannot wait to share them with you. This week's episode is the first of another two-parter. This time I am joined by Alex, who is currently based in Texas, and we chat all about his background and his experiences living in the US as a gay Asian male. Alex is truly wonderful and full of wisdom, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hi Alex, how's it going? I'm doing good, Teo. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so thanks so much for joining me on my podcast. I really appreciate your time. And I think it's especially an important time to be talking with you about your experience and things right now with everything going on. First of all, how does it feel to be coming out of that horrific winter that you guys have just been in? Um, I, I'm glad we dodged the bullet. We had that freak storm that came in and all of Texas really pretty much lost power and the roads were iced over and it was a bit of a snowmageddon situation. But luckily for us, we, we got out okay with just about 30 minutes of power loss. So yeah, and now it's it's sunny and warm and entering um, the summer season here in Dallas, which is going to be hot and miserable. So just to give some context, what's it normally like in Dallas? Yeah, the, the winters are typically cold, but um, you know we're always in the 30s, which I think is zero Celsius. I think that that's not uncommon for for winter. It's not common to get a lot of snow, but you do get cold and you do get seasons. But getting this you know crazy snowstorm with really really freezing temperatures that are sustained is very unusual. Just for any listeners who haven't been aware of the news, um, there was a huge ice storm and quite a lot of people lost their lives, didn't they? Yeah, I think there was about 10 people that we know of that have that had passed away. The worst part of it was just kind of the intersection of people already in hardship because of COVID. And then on top of that, you get with this storm where your pipes might have exploded in your house and now you're homeless. So it was just not the best time if there was a good time for that. After the storm had subsided, um, we dropped off just some, some canned food supplies to a, um, a charity run. And, uh, you know, as we were dropping it off, it was the situation where we thought there was a huge line to actually drop off supplies, but to come to find out that the line was actually people picking up supplies. So there was about a quarter mile of cars, just people waiting in line um, to pull in just to get essentials as far as canned foods and diapers and things like that. And very sobering to see, you know, I think we we live in a bubble. Um, if you have a little bit more finances and resources to see what other people are facing in your community that you might not have awareness to. That's great, though, that you've been able to use that to help others. I wish we could do more. You know, after seeing that, it was just like, wow, we don't do enough. We don't look beyond our windows too often. Oftentimes, the circle that you keep is always in the same boat as you. So you don't really have that same touch to that hardship. And it just takes some work to get out of that, right? And it's difficult with, you know, busy schedules and things like that to have a focus on that. But we definitely could do more. So going on to the other big news at the moment in the States. So obviously there's been a lot of coverage around anti-Asian hate crimes and violence. Can you talk a bit about what that's been like from your experience? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I think that, you know, what's interesting is with our, with our previous um, president, 45, 
when he he started the rhetoric. You know, I don't think it it was the only cause of this type of rhetoric. I think it would it happens anyways, right? Um, the U.S. has this epidemic of shootings, for example, and one of the first things that's looked at is the shooter's motive and the shooter's race, right? And then as soon as that's uncovered, if it's a if it's a minority race, that minority tends to go run for cover because they know that the majority is probably going to be accusing them of um, contributing to that. Right. So for me, when 45, you know, said that I knew that it was just shortly after that we would have more issues. I'm, I'm shocked that it took this long to get coverage. I'm thinking that, you know, when pandemic started and that rhetoric started, I'm pretty sure these things were already happening, but they weren't getting the press. And now in this environment that's getting the press is getting the momentum. It's social media has its eyes on it. So now we're seeing it. So I I can't say I'm shocked by it. What I'm most discouraged by it is that they seem to be hitting elderly. And, you know, as you're aware, just in Eastern culture, the elderly are are sacred to us, right? You know, I think about my grandparents and my mom and um, you hold them in high esteem and you see that they're hurting the elderly of your community and it hits harder, you know, a community that is so defenseless um, against any type of random attack. And I think that's where the burn hits, you know? Yeah, I think there's so many elements to it. There's like that filial piety, but then there's also like seeing your own mother or grandmother or dad in those people who are being hurt. And then there's also the sort of approach that a lot of Asians take to just sort of keeping their head down and just being humble and being staying quiet and just getting on with things. So I don't know. I think that all comes together and it's just, <laughs> I don't know. When I started seeing all that coverage, I just, it, it was like a mix of anger and like frustration and sadness. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's hard for me to compartmentalize the feelings sometimes because on, you know, on one end, I personally have not experienced anything directly because of this, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't impact me to see it happen. But I think what bothers me more, if I think about it, is really seeing the indifference of the people in my community that really are not concerned with it, right? And I think that's where the rub is for me sometimes, is that why aren't you reaching out? Why aren't you more empathetic to this cause? I see your Instagram posts and all I see are pictures of your baby and you and taking glamour shots. And, and then you bring up something as, you, you know, useless to, to complain about when there are bigger things that are occurring and, and, and you're not bringing to light that conversation to anybody. And to me, that, that to me is more discouraging that people that I thought were very close to me as friends really aren't really thinking of me as a part of that race or, you know, about that group to say, Alex, are you, are you good? Are, you know, is your family okay? What are your, what are your concerns? Is there anything that I could do to support? I've had one person come to me and ask me and which is so shocking. Yeah, that's just not good enough. And I feel so similar to you as well, because that's probably one of the most discouraging and sort of saddening things for me as well. That's so many people around me. It's like, you can't say that you haven't seen the news and yet it's just silence or it's as if it's not happening. I remember when the week of the shooting, I had friends just messaging me complaining about the most mundane things. And 
I couldn't deal with it. Like it's just, it's so hurtful. Yeah, it it is because it's just like ignoring the top priority things that are occurring that are, that people are actually hurting with and then bringing up something that's just so meaningless to the forefront in conversation. And I don't understand it. You know, one of the examples, I don't know if you've, you've heard any of this, but you know, the um, rapper Lil Nas X, he is a, um, a black queer rapper and he just came out with a song and the song accompanied this video. And there's a lot of like Satanistic suggestion with the video. And so a lot of people are like losing their minds over this video um, that, you know, it's like Satan worshiping or whatever. But, you know, with that, he released a set of a thousand pairs of these um, modified Nikes that were Satan shoes, right? Has like the pentagram, 666, all that. And I see people that don't comment on anything that is that to me is more meaningful where people are hurting, but really offended by this, right? And and to me, it, it's like it, this is this is the problem with apathy because you could empathize with the situation because you're a white Christian person, and this is you under attack indirectly. But if it's another group that you don't identify with, then it's not even worth commenting on. And and that's where my rub is because if you want to stay that brand and never talk about anything, then that's you. But if you if you poke your head out every once in a while, but it's really just to defend who you are and what you believe in as far as you as a person and not really defending another group, I have a problem with that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And for me, a lot of the process has been kind of figuring out, you know, like these people around me, like I know that if something happened in front of their eyes and they would speak up or do whatever, but then it's like, is that enough? I think it's no longer enough to just stay silent even when it's not happening right in front of your eyes to sort of speak out and talk about it. Yeah, and the the way I see it is like I can see my 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 group, my friends come to my rescue because they love me, but that doesn't mean that they love Asian people, right? And those are two distinctly different things. So, you know, the defense of I'm not racist. I have a black friend, right? You could still be racist. You know, you could be married to that opposing race and still be racist. That still can occur. So for me, yeah, those people that I'm, I'm really disappointed by will come to my rescue. I know they will do that, but that just means they love me. It, it doesn't mean they love my race, my culture, my family, where I come from. Yeah, that's so true. And going back to something that you brought up before, like, just the lack of people who have even bothered to reach out and ask if you're okay. I had two of my friends message me and they're both women of color and I could not articulate how profoundly moving it was for me to actually receive those messages. And all they said was, are you okay? And I'm here for you. And honestly, that is all you need to say sometimes, because I know that some people, they don't know what to say in these situations, but I'm saying that all you need to do is literally message your friend and just be like, are you okay? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I totally agree. And, you know, I, I think about the way I reacted with Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd last year and Breonna Taylor. And I, and I, I remember the struggle of thinking, okay, what, what do I do 
to reach out to the people of color that I know? What, what can I do to learn and educate myself? And to me, this is kind of a learning a year later to say, wow, I'm now on the receiving end. How would I, how would I like to be approached? Right. And how did that differ from the way I approached it the other direction? Right. And I think at the end of the day, it's, it's really not a single answer. You know, I think it's, we're not a we're not a monolithic group. Asian in general encompasses so many different cultures and different ways to approach it that there's no one way to do it. But to your point, the simple, hey, I hope you're doing well, or I hope you know if you need a person to talk to, you know, I'm here for you. That's all you really need to do at minimum, right? Just checking in on you. And and to me that that speaks volumes than just avoiding the situation out of, you know, fear of conflict. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> totally agree. So we've talked a lot about, I guess, the Asian American experience at the moment. So I guess just to clarify, can you talk a bit about your personal background? Yeah. So I, I'm turning 39 next week. Oh, happy <laughs> um, birthday. Happy yeah, birthday. <laughs> yeah. The big four is coming up soon. So my background is I'm, I'm, I'm half Vietnamese. Um, my, my father um, immigrated from Vietnam post-war and my other half is Taiwanese, my mother. So yeah, I, I identify more closely to being Taiwanese just because my parents split up as a young age and my mother raised us. And so she raised us in the culture that she's most familiar with, which is Taiwan. So I identify with being more Chinese than my Vietnamese side. I was born in California. So I'm, I consider myself an American first and foremost, and with a, with a strong connection, not a strong connection. I don't want to say strong, but a good connection to my ethnic background, just, you know, being around my family and having currently being, you know, the first gen American in my family, you know, it's interesting because, you know, my mom, my mom came to the States in her 20s and it wasn't really by her choice. It was, it was my grandparents being Asian parents and, and kind of forcing her away from a guy that didn't have any money that she was in love with. They kind of tricked her into moving to the States and not giving her a ticket to go back to Taiwan. So the story goes, my mom was seeing a guy in, in Taiwan and my, at that time, her older sister had married a, an American that was in the Air Force and had moved to California. And my grandparents didn't want them to be together. So they said, you know, go visit your sister in California. So they got her ticket. She flew to California. And when, like, when she got there, they said, okay, well, you're not coming back. So she didn't go back. And, and somewhere down the line, my, my aunt or, or somebody in my family really kind of pushed my mom and dad together. And I think about this. So it's such an interesting scenario in my mind because my mom was learning English. My dad had just come from Vietnam learning English. And so they were both Asian, but culturally could not relate being Vietnamese and Taiwanese. So their, their singular language to communicate was English. And both of them were learning English. So I, I, you know, first I'm like, that's, that's just, that just sounds like a very impossible scenario for success. <laughs> right. You, you came here not by your choice. You had a love somewhere else. You get put together with this person that you don't love. And on top of that, you really don't have any commonality and can't communicate to, to the depths that you want to because there's this language barrier. And they were the oil and water. So they were just like not meant to be really not a good situation. But they had my sister and I, and you know, we were eventually just raised by my my mom the entire time. So my mom 
was was really forced as a single mom to to raise us, and we did not have money. And so she became a waitress at a popular diner chain here called Denny's. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of oh, it. Oh, we have before. we have Denny's as well. <laughs> oh, you have Denny's. Yeah, so we have we have Denny's here, and my mom got a waitressing job, and she worked there for like over a decade as a waitress. Oh, wow. And you know, I think about that experience too, where you know my mom was working in the early '90s as a waitress at a diner, and really getting her arms around English better and maneuvering that world and working with Americans and. It's so impressive that she did that. And what I find so crazy is that she still feels that she's not smart because she doesn't know English to the to the depths that we do, or she didn't go to college. But I feel like the level of intelligence my mom has just to to you know have that bravery to go in head first and learn it. And really thrive in the culture and, and, you know, bring us up well was so impressive to me. Yeah, um, that's yeah. amazing. I think it's incredible what our parents go through and the struggles that they go through, especially in like a new country, different culture, different language. Does your mom ever talk about her experiences back then? No, you know, not, not much. And to be fair, I don't, I don't ask. I don't know if the, the information that I know about that backstory is supposed to be known to me. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that kind of circles back to you about your, your parents' history. Yeah. So I, I guess I've always been a little uncomfortable to try to validate and hear more of that story. But I, I do think that I should get more of that background story from her. Yeah. And I guess, I guess for our parents as well, or your mom, it might come with trauma. Yeah. Yeah, there's a level of like, I don't want to talk about it, right? And I don't know, you know, the resources back then for everybody, I believe, was just, you know, grit through it. Especially if you are an immigrant, you don't have resources, just grind down and and move on. There's none of this, well, I need to get a therapist, right? (laughs) I need need some help. (laughs) No, mental health is not a discussion in Asian families. Yeah, you you grit through it and you you're like uh, I why are you why are you so upset? You have all your needs met. That's really the message that you get and and so when I think about that I, I just like I I don't know if a lot of the things that my mom had gone through as a young woman are really resolved in her without addressing it. So I I, I think that's kind of, kind of one of my big questions. Yeah, maybe ask her about it one day. <laughs> Yeah, like a really deep conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I find it quite difficult to have these kinds of conversations with my parents because there's actually so much that I want to know about their lives before they had me. But it's always so awkward asking them. Yeah, it feels like you're like meddling in their business <laughs> yeah. a bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like forcing them to talk about things they might not necessarily want to talk about. <laughs> Yeah, totally. You know, I, I, I totally, I totally see that. But I do want to say that I did have this one conversation with my mom, my mom, and you know, I, I think this is probably a very distinctly Asian type thing. And I don't want to say that. I don't want to make that generalization. But typically, it's hard to communicate with Asian parents, right? I think in general, it's very. When I, for example, when I see my white friends and. They were talking to their parents about sex in high school. Like my jaw just hit the ground, <laughs> right? It's crazy. I, I just thought like, there's no way in hell 
when I have this conversation with my mom or dad and my mom and dad are not my friends. Yeah, right? exactly. Yes. That relationship, which is more like a friendship. I don't understand. I cannot relate. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I like, I, I do not understand that at all. But, you know, I, I will say there was this one time where I was having coffee with my mom and then she was having some, uh, she was having a little like fight with my sister because they just bicker all the time. Mm. But then my mom just unprompted really started going through a lot of what I perceived as wrongs in our childhood. And it was almost as if she was confessing the things that I knew were wrong. But it would never go well if I asked her to admit that she did wrong. What do you mean by wrong? So we had struggles, you know, growing up. She did her best. She was a single mom trying to raise two kids at, with a waitress salary, right? So she did her best, but there were things that were not the best choices, right, for us. In retrospect, I'm keenly aware of what those choices were. But in my mind, my mom didn't have awareness to it, that she was oblivious to it or in denial of them. But in this conversation, just imagine like having this a conversation with your parents and unprompted, they're telling you everything that, that they did wrong with you without you asking and what that would feel like. And I would say that conversation was such a turning point for me. I, I would say that after hearing her say it unprompted, I, I was just so released of any type of animosity that I had felt with certain things. And I let it go and it was gone. That was a gift. Uh, I I don't know if my sister's ever received that, but to me, that was such a gift. So you said earlier that your mom obviously raised you and your sister. Did she keep you guys quite connected with your Taiwanese background? To an extent, the good thing is we we have a lot of cousins and we all live in the same area. So, you know, with them, we were able to grow up and we're all in the same experience because all of us were born as first gen American. I'm so grateful for that. But, you know, as far as our connection to my Chinese side, it was to the extent of, you know, going to Chinatown on the weekends, um, you know, attending temple every once in a while with my mom. Or um, trying to go to Chinese school, but really forced, like rejecting Chinese school as hard as I could. And I regret, I regret that now because yeah. <laughs> I can't speak Chinese. So uh, I, w- I wish I would have stuck with it. But, you know, we had the same, you know, my, I, I grew up Buddhist. Um, we, we, we lit incense for our house Buddha every day. Only ate Chinese food in the house, pretty much. I always had like a big pot of soup and the rice cooker going. So I was, I always felt. I always knew growing up that I was not a typical American kid. I was getting the lunch pail and getting the thermos and my mom not putting milk in there, but putting soy sauce, pork and eggs inside of a, a, the, the thermos and me feeling so self-conscious about opening it at the lunch the table. Yeah. And the smells like, I just remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I smell. Everything about me smells because all of our food smells different. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, just I, that mortifying feeling. Yeah, I had a similar thing because my mum makes the best dumplings and she used to make them with chives and, you know, mm. like the smell of chives. And yeah, I used to be afraid to open my lunchbox as well, um, especially if it was raining outside and we had to eat lunch inside and then you'd open your lunchbox and it would just smell like garlic and chives and ginger, which is like... Some of my favorite smells now, but yeah. 
back when you're a child. <laughs> you don't want like to stink out the room. Oh yeah, totally. You you're so you were like, gosh, I just want that boring sandwich, and I I want something that's so like sterile that doesn't smell yeah. that has a package. Um, <laughs> And I don't want any of that. But now as an adult, you're like, man, I had a good. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, right. Our lunches are so much better than those boring sandwiches. <laughs> no, I know. I totally, I totally agree. But, you know, I, I feel like in high school, there was a turning point with that. There was more of a, um, I went to school with a lot of Asian Pacific Islanders. There weren't a lot of Chinese people or, or other um, Asian races, but a lot of Filipinos. And so you know, finding my, my group there of other Asian people really helped me try to embrace it. So I remember starting to pack like, you know, baozi for lunch and, and being able to have those foods and have people actually say, oh my gosh, can I have a bite of that? It was such a good change for me um, as I got older. Yeah. What do you think about the, the trend nowadays with seemingly everything like Asian, like dumplings and like bao and like boba? I know it's, it's, um, sometimes it's a bit jarring. I mean, I see kids eating sushi and I'm like, there's no way I would have taught my kid how to eat sushi. It's too expensive. (laughs) So, um, I, I don't have an issue with it unless it's very appropriated. And I think that it's just, it's, there's such a fine line between, you know, making sure that there's representation, but appropriating the shit out of it. And I think it, it happens so often and it just, it, it boils me to see that. And it's not just Asian food. It's Mexican food. It's Indian food. It's taking something and putting it through this screen and making it palatable and not ever nodding to where it's from. I have a hard problem with that, a big problem with that, especially when the, the places that are authentically owning those cuisines are seen as dirty and seen as places that you would not spend mon- more money on because they're they're cheap eats, right? You wouldn't pay top dollar, but if a if a if a, a non Asian person opens it up and makes it look trendy, they could ch- charge three times the amount and people will pay it. Yeah, I have a, a I'm pretty skeptical towards that kind of stuff as well because it's it's very much a thing here at the moment. These trendy Asian fusion places run by mostly white chefs and I don't really like it when people associate for example like Asian food with being cheap and dirty and that's the only way that you can eat authentic Asian food I totally agree with you there's um there's a restaurant in Dallas that's not Asian owned and the name of the restaurant is some dang good Chinese food God, (laughs) and I just saw this and was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Right? It is just crazy. There was another Asian restaurant named Gung Ho. And it, it, it just, it's, it's just wild. A couple of years ago, there was a restaurant in New York City that was called um, Lucky Lee's. It was a, a white couple owned. And what they were advertising on social media before opening was that you could come here and have clean Chinese food and not feel awful two hours after eating. Yeah, actually, I and, think I heard about that. Yeah, and I mean, they, they, I mean, the Asian people broke the internet and just totally ripped them <laughs> apart before they yes. opened. Because <laughs> Lee was her husband who's white. They had yeah. no Chinese chef consultants. It was all whitewashed. And, and using the word clean, which is common to describe food that's healthy, 
but in context of New York Chinese food, which is so its own thing. And to equate that as like a juxtaposition against the dirtiness of that and say that, you know, ours is clean. It's just so offensive. It's so offensive. And again, it's that kind of trying to bring it closer to whiteness thing as well to make it more acceptable. And it's completely ignoring where it's come from. Did you also hear about that company that tried to bring mahjong into like the modern era mm, oh my <laughs> gosh i think they said? Uh, yeah i think those um women are actually from texas i oh, think they're no. actually from dallas <laughs> yeah totally um and they were charging like 250 dollars a set or something like that oh, for a mahjong wow. set <laughs> yeah and I, I saw that that they were just they were just ripped as well I don't fully disagree that what we own is what we own, but I do think that the people that that are really interested in the culture will dig into it and love the culture. And if they love the culture, it comes out in what they do. But I don't think that it always occurs that way. Somebody looks at it and says, oh, I love Asian culture. I'm going to just do this on my own and not consult, not include, um, not try to be a part of the community narrative and improvement, but just make my own thing and clean it. And, And I think that's the problem, right? I just, in this day and age, with so much conversation around these issues going on, I just, I it blows my mind when people keep doing this over and over again, that they keep making the same mistakes and they don't do their research and they don't learn. Yeah, it's it's odd, isn't it? I, I think that if, if, if we ourselves were to open up a Indian restaurant because we love Indian food, I don't think that we would just like go at it alone and just get books and try to improve upon Indian recipes, right? I would I would want to, if I wanted to do a, a different spin on it, I would, I would really want to dig deeper into what it means and what, what things should should move from the original, right? And have it more of a, like an homage to it than just like an appropriation of it. I, I, don't, I don't know why that's not obvious to some, but I think that if you come to it from a place of privilege, then everything is is something for you to own. But if you don't, you question ownership more. You mentioned earlier as well that you didn't really struggle growing up as an Asian male. Is that because you grew up in quite a diverse community in California? Yeah, I'd like to think so. My majority population growing up was Latino, being in Southern California. So a lot of Mexican kids were around me. Uh, I would say Filipino, Black, and white was... Not, I don't, I would even question if that was the real majority. It might have been like a 40%. So it could have been a majority because everything else is kind of more, you know, broken up. So, you know, I always knew that I was not white. For example, I always knew that I was Asian and, and that I was different, but I don't, I don't remember feeling much adversity to it. But I think it goes towards where Asian people fit in the school system because we do have privilege there. When I think about not having privilege or not having a systemic racist issue is that people believe that you are going to be a great student and a well-behaved student and you're going to apply yourself and you're not going to cause trouble. Um, and to a lot of ways, you know, I think that is probably the generalization of, 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 of who we are, but I didn't fit that norm. I was not the smartest kid in the classroom <laughs> I got F's and D's and I, I was not the best student. So I did, I definitely did not fit that mold. Yeah. And that's where the whole model minority myth kind of comes in as well. This idea, right? That Asians are the better minority because they're well-educated, good at school, get good jobs. 
Yeah. And you know, the funny thing I, after our, our earlier discussion, I was, I was kind of like thinking about why model minority bugs me. And I was really thinking about, does it really offend me to be called a model minority? And I think at the end of the day, overall, I'm going to be honest. I don't think it does because all the things that you said are all positive things. There's, there's a lot of people with stereotypes with really bad implications, right? That really systemically hinder them. And, and being mild model minority does not hinder us. But what I hate about it is that it implies that there's a non-model minority. And I, and I think that's what irks me about it is because then that implies that there's a minority or minorities as a whole are seen as model or non-model. And that means that if you group a group of people as non-model, then they're going to get less resources. And that's what bugs me about that title. I think that's the primary problem with that whole model minority perception because it kind of detracts from the real problem and it kind of puts like minorities against each other because if you are of another minority group and you see or you have this perception that Asians get more than you, then you kind of, you know, you feel that sort of anger and resentment towards them when actually you should be directing it towards like the white supremacy and like colonialism and all of yeah, that that's like, right. sort of institutional, like long standing discrimination. Yeah, it's kind of putting the the negativity in the wrong place. I guess I guess the big thing is like marginalization or othering is not good on the positive or the negative end. There's implications on both, right? So the the minute you try to other, then there's an issue. And and from my perspective, why am I not American? And and why am I even a minority? Why am I still considered a minority? I I know percentage wise why it's minority, but at the same time, like why am I still seen as an outsider in this whole American culture because I don't look white. Yeah. And what does it even mean to be American anyway? It's a country built on immigration. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how long you want to talk, but I I just feel like, you know, America is, is often advertised as a melting pot, a place of opportunity, melting pot, come here, take your talents, you can live the American dream, all that, right? What I don't think they tell you is that the melting pot is mixed and then they put a whole bottle of bleach inside for you to become white. And if if you're not white, then you really didn't melt into the culture. And if you do become quote-unquote white, then you get accused of being whitewashed or, you know, I could be accused of, of sounding white or you know, I always struggle with that. Like, how, how is my accent white? If, if I just, I speak California English, I was brought up in California. So how can I be accused of not sounding Asian, but sounding white? And why do white people get to own how I sound? I, I, I don't, I don't understand that, that, that type of a, a concept. So my, my issue with it, with, with like America is that, yeah, come, come as you are, but make sure that you can become as white acculturated as possible in our melting pot or else you'll be marginalized. Yeah, that's such a good point. And you did mention that the first time that we spoke and it's so true because they say the same thing for Auckland as well. It's such a melting pot of cultures, but actually it's also very whitewashed. Like you'll never ever be truly accepted into the society unless you bring yourself close to whiteness. Right. Yeah. You, you, 
if, if I live in the neighborhood that I live now, which is predominantly white, you know, and I did all this Asian stuff to my house, I, I don't think it'd be very well received. <laughs> like hanging the lanterns. <laughs> yeah, you know, like putting lions out front. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> to make my house look Asian. <laughs> um, but you, you, do, do, you do everything to make sure to justify on a daily basis that you're not outside. You know, there's this, this, this concept of, of, of coding you kind of change your, your, your whole code uh, based on the group that you're with. And, you know, I feel that way for my Asian-ness and I feel that way for my sexuality, that in some groups you tend to morph to what's more palatable for that group, right? And you, you just change, change codes a lot. Thank you for listening to part one of Alex's story. Part two will be out next week where we go more in-depth into his sexuality and how it intersects with other parts of his identity. As always, don't forget to rate, share and subscribe.